Tommy Griffith, welcome to the Indie Hackers Podcast. Cortland, thanks so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. You previously managed SEO at both PayPal and Airbnb. And today you are the founder of a business called ClickMinded, which is on track to average about $40,000 a month in revenue in 2019. Tell us a little bit about what ClickMinded is and who's using it. Yeah, so ClickMinded is a digital marketing training platform for entrepreneurs and marketers. Um, we teach people how to do how to do digital marketing. A lot of uh, our customer avatars are entrepreneurs, in-house marketers, or consultants and agencies, and um, and we focus a lot on team training. It started as a side project of mine. I was managing search engine optimization at PayPal and started um, physically teaching in-person SEO classes. So I would, uh, I would rent out a co-working space in San Francisco and in, in North Beach in, uh, in 2012, rent out, a, rent out a co-working space and kind of teach people SEO. It was like a dorky kind of Saturday morning sort of thing. All you can, all you can SEO. We would kind of nerd out on people's websites from like nine in the morning to five at night and try and figure out how to get them more traffic. It was a really bad business. <laughs> I, I really liked doing it, but um, it doesn't work. <laughs> and uh, But it just ended up being right place, right time with this kind of online course renaissance that we're in now. I ended up taking that offline course, turning it into an online course. It became a side project I used at work. So once I moved over to Airbnb, we would use the online SEO training to train up all the data scientists and designers and engineers that joined the, the SEO team, part of the growth team at Airbnb. It eventually eclipsed my salary. And then uh, two years ago, I left Airbnb to go full-time on it. Now we have a small team of five and, uh, and we're growing a lot. So it's been a lot of fun. You wrote a blog post recently and you included a tweet from Naval Ravikant that says, a taste of freedom can make you unemployable. At what point in this journey of you working on a side project to eventually quitting Airbnb to work on it full-time, did that statement become true for you? At what point did you become unemployable, Tommy? Oh man, um, way to dig in there and, and pull that one out. I and and yeah, I'm I'm so obsessed with Naval at this point. Um, he's just an absolute monster, but um, he's so right. He's so right, and you know it's really interesting, Corlin, because I was in this situation where like when I the way I got into internet marketing was by starting my own business right out of university. Um, I started a very obscure. I guess you could call it startup with a friend of mine. We were focusing on medical tourism. We started a medical tourism facilitation company in Taiwan. We were focusing on knee and hip replacement surgery for Americans age 45 to 65 that were looking for like cheaper kind of out-of-pocket medical care. We did everything wrong. Everyone really badly. Yeah. <laughs> dangerous? Are you you mean an idiot 22-year-old with no medical experience running a medical tourism <laughs> facilitation company is a bad idea? Is that <laughs> Is that what you're how did inferring? That would, how did that turn out? <laughs> yeah, so not well, but you know, that was a big problem. I borrowed a bunch of money from family and friends and um lit it all on fire basically, did everything wrong and came home tail between my legs, like didn't know what to do. It ended up just being right place, right time. I'd learned SEO and PayPal was hiring an SEO manager and that sort of moved me back into the, like, you know, turning internet marketing into an actual job. I managed SEO, PayPal, and Airbnb for six years, started the side project, and then took off. And so I was, I kind of had always wanted to do something sort of entrepreneurial, but my first attempt was like, guns blazing, came out the door so hard and fell like immediately on my face, you know? <laughs> well, nobody died, I, I presume. Nobody, nobody went died. To jail. 
nobody went to jail. So I guess I'm <laughs> like, it wasn't Enron. It could have been worse, I guess. But yeah, so it was interesting for me because I had this weird, you know, a lot of people in their like decision calculus of like, do I take like, I'm an indie hacker, I'm listening to this podcast, like, when do I take my side project full time? The decision calculus is like really easy when you hate your job, <laughs> right? Like, right. it's like Google Sheet out, what's my cost of living? What's my revenue? The minute like the line, right, sort of crosses, you're gone, right? For me, it was interesting for a couple of things. The first was like, I really liked Airbnb. I, I joined at like this prolific time. I The first week I joined Airbnb, we were subpoenaed by the state of New York for our data. And the last week I was there, I worked on a Super Bowl ad and Beyonce had stayed in an Airbnb, right? It was like, uh, like, no, like it was 100 something employees when I joined, 2000 something when I left. None of my friends had heard of it when I joined. Everyone had heard of it when I left. So I loved my job and the, the company was so awesome. I felt like I was there at an unprecedented time. And not only that, I had been burned by the, the, the wounds were fresh from the initial idea of like how bad it can get. Right. right. And so, and so I was in this weird situation where I really wanted to jump, but I was at such an awesome company and I knew exactly how bad it could go that like, I think I, I really understand when people are nervous about leaving because it can go really bad. <laughs> it can. And so now, you know, I'm out and I really don't think I could ever work somewhere else again, maybe, but probably not. But um, yeah, I get what Naval's saying around being unemployable. When you are somewhere awesome and you believe in the mission and you really enjoy your colleagues, it's easier to be employable for a little while longer. But uh, but I do get what he's saying. Like when you get that taste of freedom, it makes it hard to go back. You know what yeah. I mean? You heard it here first, folks. If you want to be an indie hacker, get a job you hate. So you'll be motivated to quit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you're at Airbnb. Before that, you're at PayPal. And before that, you'd started a company that didn't go too well. How do you decide what to work on when you first decide that you want to dabble in side projects again? Because there's so many different things you can do. You have probably so many different skills under your belt working at these companies. How do you narrow it down? Man, this is such a good question. And this is probably like the indie hacker, indie hacker boards are like just riddled with this stuff, right? Like this hilarious mix of passion and ADD and total yeah. addressable market sizing, right? <laughs> I was just at a, a meetup yesterday in Seattle and there's a guy and he had 40 different ideas. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to quit my company at some point and go work on my own thing. But I just got to figure out which of these 40 it's going to be. <laughs> so actually, there's a test we invented around this, around entrepreneurial ADD. And I absolutely had it. But there's a really good test after talking to a bunch of friends about this. The test to figure out how much like neurotic entrepreneurial ADD you have is how many unused domains you have in your hosting account right now. <laughs> and if it's if it doesn't fit on all 10 fingers, you have entrepreneurial ADD. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> and so yeah, I, I had this problem as well. Clickminded, you know, was idea number 15 for me. Like, I tried a lot of different things. And part of the motivation for me was this debt I'd caused for myself. Like I was, I was very blessed. My parents paid for university. I was one of the few people to graduate with no college debt. And I put myself into debt trying this business idea. So I was like really embarrassed by this. I was pretty miserable and I was way too confident and did everything wrong. And I was really kind of had beat myself up over the fact that I'd like done this to myself, you know? And so being like miserable and in debt is actually like the greatest force in human nature. I mean, it will it will make you move, right? Like you will skip happy hour and wake up on Saturday morning to to get it done, you know what I mean? At least for me. 
And so it's really interesting. And actually, I hate to be such a fanboy about Naval, but Naval, Naval covers this as well. He says, um, I, as an example, right, one of the many ideas I had, I had this idea for an iPhone app development lead generation site. So it was like 2011. It's in San Francisco. That's probably right around when you got there, right? Or maybe you were there. Yeah, a little I got there in 2010. Okay, cool. Yeah, I got there beginning of 2011. And so I had this idea for an iPhone app development lead generation site. So like everyone at the time was like trying to learn Xcode. If they hadn't, if you were a company that didn't have an iOS app, you were like lame and you wanted to outsource one really fast, right? right? And so the idea was like, okay, you could see in Google Trends and Google Keyword Planner data, like all the search query volume for iPhone app development companies and iOS developer costs and iPhone app development agency were like all going up. And so the idea was like, okay, create this site that ranks really well for these keywords and then maybe sell the leads, like create a lead generation site, right? And I was, I worked on it and I got it up and live and ranking, generating traffic, generating leads. Every morning, like when I went to go work on it on Saturday morning, I just hated it. Like I, I, I just had no interest in it, right? It was just so like transactional and mechanical to me. And I wasn't really in iOS and I'm a droid guy anyways, right? And so like all, all this kind of stuff. And so I just, I didn't like it. And um, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of like kind of tropes in the Valley right now around around markets. Was it Andreessen or someone they say like, I'd rather have a mediocre product and a mediocre team in a great market right. than a great product and a great team in a mediocre market. But if you're an indie hacker or you're working on a side project, I really disagree with this because I think there's an underrated amount of effort. Like there's an undervalued amount of, of, of focus you should put on your own personal interest in the thing, right? And for me, you know, I was a dork when I was a kid. I loved playing computer games and I love, I ended up, that turned into like search engine optimization. I loved watching rankings go up on the dashboard and traffic going up on the dashboard. So it just became right. my like computer game. I also loved teaching. And then surprise, surprise, teaching SEO was like my dream come true. Like I, I loved doing it. Right. And so it's like a really long winded answer to your question. But Naval says this, he says, what you work on should f like, should feel like play to you and work to your competitors. And over a long enough time horizon, right? Like if you're working 8, 12, 16 hours a day and it's it's work for your competitors and it's play for you, you can't really lose, right? And yeah. so right? And so I guess that's sort of the way I think about it is like I had a bunch of entrepreneurial ADD at the beginning and I do think you need some of that. But once you find that thing that feels like play, Drop everything else. If you're that guy in Seattle listening right now, drop 39 of those 40 domains and pick the one thing to hammer because you like kind of have to focus on that one thing um, to get it going. I love that you mentioned that quote from Mark Andreessen because it just kind of highlights the importance of taking advice from the right people, understanding the context of the people who are giving advice and the context that you find yourself in and making sure those two things align. If you're trying to build a massive unicorn business that has to be you know, worth a billion or $10 billion to pay back your investors. And of course, you need to be in some sort of monster market. And that matters a ton. But if you're an indie hacker, and it's like, this is something you're doing really to make your own life better. Uh, it makes no sense to start a business that you don't love working on every single day. Exactly. And the problem and, and you're so right about that. You phrase it really well. One of my friends said this in a really fun way. He said, if you, especially if you're an indie hacker, if you take that, like only do the best markets idea to its inevitable conclusion, 
you the only things you can work on are like oil, like gas <laughs> exploration, like going to Mars, right? Tobacco, yeah. because like those are the biggest markets. And like if you just it's kind of crazy to take that to the end line of thinking, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, so you figured out that you wanted to work on something that you loved. And here you were working as a full-time SEO expert. Is that exactly how you found out that ClickMind would be the business for you? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think I loved search engine optimization. I was shocked someone would be willing to pay me to do it because it still feels like like an MMORPG or something like that to me. You know what I mean? Like it just feels like an online game to me. So I, I like it. And then teaching was, is a lot of fun for me as well. The, the big dirty secret about teaching is you learn so much faster when you teach, right? So like when I first started, I was teaching, but like the big dirty secret was I was I was really learning, um, learning a lot more, like walking out there like a clown pretending like I was knowing what I was, know, knowing what I was talking about, but, but, but learning a lot, right? Like, um, so that, that was a lot of fun. But yeah, I mean, there's been a bunch of things. It is really fun to teach this stuff. And I ended up, I think, yeah, the easy test for me was just like, I would, I was doing it when the business wasn't making any money. The business was a dumb idea and I still love doing it. The, it only changed when it became an online course. The unit economics became a lot more like a SaaS. Right. And, uh, and it really started to scale and blow up and it all went really well. But it was kind of like, oh, like, that's convenient. I was kind of enjoying doing this either way, but fine, we can put it online. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean, so it ended up working. Tell me about this dumb idea phase, because that's the phase that most indie hackers are at, where they're just like, I've got an idea. I don't know if it's good yet. You know, there comes a point where you start accumulating wins. You start figuring out what works and you build momentum. But that's almost like an entirely different phase from the first phase where you have no momentum and you don't know if it's a good idea. Uh, and that's the, the phase that most people find hardest. How did you get through that phase and what did that look like for ClickMinded? Is that is dumb idea phase a thing? Because I, I, <laughs> I don't know. That's it a, should be. That's a good like moniker or, or tag for it for sure. Like the trough of sorrow and then dumb idea phase maybe? Right. Yeah, every day you're like, <laughs> is this a dumb idea? Am I wasting my time working on this idea? And you don't know. It could right. be. You never know. I feel like half of my life is dumb idea phase. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Okay. This, this is, I I love getting into the weeds on this. So one very simple tactic that I accidentally did correctly, I did a lot of things wrong, but I accidentally did this one correctly was going offline first. And I can guarantee you indie hackers are going to be like disproportionately bad at this because I was one, right? I'm an indie, as we talked about earlier before the show started, I'm an indie lurker. I'm I'm like on the boards all the time, but I started my business with meetup.com. And, um, you know, I was doing an SEO training course. Of course, my first tactic was uh, for user acquisition was SEO. SEO takes time, as a lot of people know. And so one of the first things I did to try and get going was was with Meetup. And I still think if you have a new idea or you're in the dumb idea phase for your indie project, Meetup.com is one of the single best user acquisition tactics for new ideas because it's the fastest, cheapest way, in my opinion, to bootstrap an email list. So if you go to meetup.com right now, it costs like $15 to set up a meetup group as an organizer. Meetup will immediately email everyone in your city based on the categories you select during the account creation process. Invite people to your meetup, to your, join your group. I created the San Francisco SEO meetup in 2011, paid $15, set up all the categories. And then within three days, I had an email list of 100 people interested in SEO and digital marketing in San Francisco. I held one happy hour. It didn't even cost money. Like I called a bar and said, uh, Thursday night, 6 p.m., like, can I bring a bunch of nerds by to like drink cheap beers? <laughs> and um, 
And then it grew even a little bit more to like 150. And then so my first idea for the course, I emailed all the users, 150 people in San Francisco interested in SEO and physically got them in a room, right? And this was one of the things that was really interesting. There was competing SEO courses on Udemy at the time, Udemy online course marketplace, I'm sure many are familiar with. But um, a lot of the other online courses, they were like guys like sitting in their basement, talking into their laptops, like talking voiceover slides and like with these online courses. But when I was teaching in person, like you see on your user's face immediately when you suck or when yeah. some when something works, right? Or or you that thing you thought would be valuable isn't or something you thought wasn't valuable is you just like the cycle time is so much faster, right? Yeah. And on top of that, I think a lot of indie hackers are really prone to like sending cold email, trying Facebook ads, doing stuff that's sort of like behind the screen. But I was able to, it's sort of the like do things that don't scale sort of stuff. It didn't scale at all. It was kind of a dumb idea, but I was in person, like drinking the beers and having these conversations with the users and figured out what they actually wanted. So it was my own dumbness that had me there initially, but it ended up being like accidentally correct. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's like correct in numerous ways. You kept saying this this phrase early on where you said that you were in the right place at the right time, but you're also doing a lot of the right things. And like you said, okay, you were doing things that don't scale. You're actually talking to people, engaging their reactions and seeing their facial expressions. Uh, you were having conversations with people and getting feedback on what you were doing. And I think the thing I love the most was the fact that you talk about how quick that feedback loop is. It's almost like a video game. I also played a lot of video games as a kid, and I prided myself on being pretty good. And the reason that I would get good is because I would play so much, and you go through that feedback loop of losing, you figure out why you lost, you do better the next round, over and over again, hundreds of times a day, and you just get better. Whereas in a startup, the feedback loops can be super slow. If it takes you like six months to release a product, and then you send some emails, you don't get responses, people come to your site, but you don't hear what they say, and so you don't get any feedback. It might be like months and months and months before you even realize that like your phrasing or your tagline or your offering doesn't resonate with people. So I really love your approach of doing it in person. Yeah, that's an interesting way to, to think about it. Hammering certain levels of certain video games multiple times was my move as well. So I know, <laughs> yeah. I know, I know that angle. But yeah, you're right. I mean, especially with an online course, which is a little bit more like kind of media focused than it is software application, the some of the yeah cycle times of, of creating high quality content can be long as well. But you're right, like the guys I was competing with against, and again, this is not saying I knew this at the time. I mean, in hindsight, it was correct. They get their feedback when they get the one star review, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's too late. And for me, it was like I had taught this course 15 times in person, back to back to back to back, weekend a weekend a weekend a weekend. And so like the V1 in quotation marks of the online course was probably like two years ahead of what other people could get by pushing something out online, getting the feedback, taking it down, pushing it back online, et cetera, et cetera, you know? Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about these events. One of the stressful things about having events is that people might not show up, <laughs> but you've got all the upfront costs, right? You might not know how many people are going to turn out until the day of the event, but you've got to pay for a venue, you've got to pay for drinks or refreshments or whatever it is. Uh, how did you deal with that early on? Like, What are the logistics of, of doing this if somebody wants to sort of follow in your approach and teach things to people in person? No one has ever asked me this, but I love this because I'm like... 
no one was ever interested in this, in the details, like the unit economics of the events, but it was critical. It's absolutely critical. I'm so glad you just asked this because usually no one's interested in it. But yeah, it's critical. Okay, so I have very specific feedback on this if you're going to use meetup.com. The first is when you host a meetup, the more meta feedback, the minute your meetup ends, schedule a new meetup. Even if it's two months from there, from that point, because there's two ways to search on meetup. One is for upcoming events and one is for meetup groups. If you always have an upcoming event going, you're gonna add five to 25 emails a day, right? So even if, and this might be more gray hat, but even if you don't plan on having that event two months from now, create the event, create it, right? Because you're just constantly adding new users to your group. When I held the course, and you're 100% right, especially with something like meetup.com where most things are free, the flake rate is really high. The ghost rate, like people will ghost you probably more than they ghost you on Tinder. Right? <laughs> so like uh, you need to be very um, dil- like kind of neurotic about this. So like the average meetup group I was seeing um, when you host a free event, it's like a 25 to 30% show up rate. So one tactic you can do that I use is very successful. You host the event, you put a price tag on it. Uh, my first events were always free. I just, my, I wanted to get feedback really fast and I wanted to sort of build the users but I knew the flake rate was really high on these things. So I put a price tag on the event and I said, hey, this is my SEO. At first, I tried to do one for free. And yeah, it was like no one was showing up, so I had to cancel it. So a couple of weeks later, I did it again with a price tag on it. And I said, hey, I'm do- doing this search engine optimization course. It's normally uh, it's $500 per user for all day, all you can SEO. Uh, but it's going to be free for the first 20 people that ask for a promo code. Let me know. And surprise, surprise, attendance rate 70%. So right? funny. <laughs> so yeah, that one that one works out really well. The other thing too with the offline events, and again, the unit economics on my in-person training class were really bad. But part of the reason why they were really bad was because I took less risk. So I ended up doing a lot of partnerships in the first year of the business where I basically took a lot of quote unquote bad deals Every co-working space, I didn't, I couldn't afford them, and I was too risky to book one in advance, give them a bunch of money, and have no one show up, right? So I ended up asking for just doing a 50-50 rev share, revenue share with these co-working wow. spaces. Wow, that's high. It's high. It was really high. And so it ended up being, yeah, I wouldn't book. I would like have an event. I would have a date up for it. They would reserve space for me. But if no one showed up, it was okay, right? And so the thing is, like again, it looked like... I was taking bad deals at the beginning, but I find it fascinating how little value people put on like the initial traction of your first users, right? Like the revenue looking back now meant was so little in comparison of like getting product market fit, right? And like getting the first kind of momentum, right? You know what I mean? And so I, again, this is another thing I accidentally did correctly, which was like give away a little bit more money up front in order to gain access to like lower risk platforms, like access to people's email lists, um, things like that. Cool. Yeah. I love the uh, the psychology behind business because business can kind of seem like a dry, a dry subject, but then you get into the nitty gritty of like how people get their first users and customers. And it's always this cool stuff. We do meetups and indie hackers and for the longest time, we had a meetups page on the website. And I was like, yeah, come to the meetups page, post a meetup. And like few, if any people did. And then we said, hey, fill out this form to apply to host Indie Hackers meetups. And suddenly 200 people applied to host Indie Hackers meetups. So it's like these little psychological tricks are just really fun to uncover. 
It's, it's, it's everything. I mean, that's Ivy League schools, nightclubs, right? Like fraternities, yeah. sororities. I mean, this is companies. This is, this is how you build a following, how you build a cult, right? We're, we are bizarre creatures. <laughs> yeah, we really are. So let's talk about you turning ClickMinded into an online business. When did that idea first occur to you? Yeah, so it ended up. I know you called me out for this already, but yeah, right place, right time with uh, with <laughs> <laughs> with um with this online course like kind of revolution we're in now. It was started with Udemy, Udemy online course marketplace, and sort of pivoted like the offline version onto Udemy. Was on Udemy for a little while. Unfortunately, I, I don't recommend um, going there anymore. It's not. It's really not a viable place for an indie hacker or a serious entrepreneur to to build a long term business. I'm very honest, grumpy blog post a while ago around how I was I, I didn't like what Udemy was doing. I think they, they created a bunch of new policies that were like teacher unfriendly. You don't get access to your email users. They put a price cap on how much you can charge. They take right. a huge rev share. Um, it's, there's some third-party platforms you can build a real business on. Like you could build a real business, a real life on the App Store, on Airbnb, on you, on Uber, but you can't really build a life on on Udemy anymore. So I I don't recommend it anymore, unfortunately. But yeah, yeah, Udemy was kind of the start, the impetus for that, and then um, eventually took it on my own site. So started hosting myself. The early days were miserable. Learning management systems were so bad in like 2012, 2013. Uh, but now there's so many. There's a lot of great third-party ones. We use Teachable as, as part of our stack now. Uh, but there, there's a lot out there. And yeah, from there, it was like, oh, wait, this, you know, Tommy's 28th idea is finally starting to work. So it ended up taking off. So you're not a, a developer yourself, are you? I'm a wannabe faux developer. Um a very little bit. Uh, it was actually interesting. I, I took some CS online courses before I got at Airbnb, and I've pushed maybe a few dozen commits into the Airbnb code base. Oh, cool! But actually, going off off topic, I I highly recommend this for any any product managers listening, or um, anyone that's like a specialist. Like, if you're an email marketing specialist or an SEO or SEM specialist, and I'm curious what 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 you think about this, Corlin. But when I first got to Airbnb, and you're trying to get a change introduced on the site, you have to be very delicate and not annoying with with good engineers. And um, what I found after a couple meetings where I was being annoying and uh, and like and like not engineer friendly, you're way better off writing the V1 of the change yourself. So instead of booking an engineer's time and calling them into a meeting and being a jerk, I would write the change, right? Like push the commit out, tag the person I was with. And instead of saying like, hey, let's have a meeting about this, I'd be like, here's what I'm trying to do. What do you think? And even though my code was often garbage, <laughs> it's actually way better than sending a calendar invite, right? Yes. It's like, right? And so, like, usually whoever I was working with would be like, you're an idiot, but I'm going to fix this for you. And so yeah. that, that ended up being pretty helpful. That's great advice. I can confirm from the other side of that equation as an engineer, when people come to me asking for help or to be a co-founder on something, uh, it's way better if they've done, like, some steps. And it's actually kind of fun as an engineer to fix somebody's bad code. It's kind of like, oh, look at this. Like, someone wrote some code. Like, let me, let me make it better. Uh, and so I totally agree with that advice. It makes, makes perfect sense. I wonder... Yeah. I wonder how, as a as an SEO specialist who wasn't really writing any code, do you feel any uh, I don't know like stress or worry about moving to start an online business? Yeah, I mean, it was interesting. I think a lot of I mean, a lot of like online courses now are kind of a big chunk of this like codeless sort of trend that's happening now. You can if you can do the media, if you can do the video and the audio and whatever. There's just 
there's so many platforms that you can use and like you could go very simple with it. You can go complex with it. We're not really, our, our stack is like very complex now, but we're not really doing any engineering. It's a lot of like drip and teachable and Zapier and Thrivecard and like a lot of duct taping it all together with third-party applications, but it's not, you have to be kind of bright to like to thread the needle a little bit and do it, but you don't have to be like really deep in in rails or like react or anything like that right so it it makes it a little bit more manageable and that's kind of been me like i've been able to even though i'm not i'm not proficient in any particular engineering language i have always been able to kind of duct tape everything together you know what i mean <laughs> yeah so at some point you reached six figures in revenue i think it was 2014 two or three years after you started click minded how did you start to think about your relationship between working a full-time job and having a side project whose revenue is surpassing your full-time job? Yeah, this is, um, this is such a good question. I think the first thing to think about, and any like anyone who's, any indie hacker that's listening now that has something on the side, there's like a trope going around entrepreneurial circles right now that I really agree with, which is called the thousand-day principle. And the basic idea is it takes about a thousand days to get a side project to replace your salary. And when I first heard this, I went back in time and looked, and it was crazy how accurate this was for me. My I counted down to the day, and for me, it was like 10,000 or 1,040 days. Like, and I've close. asked, yeah, super close. And I've asked other people as well. It always seems to be somewhere between like 800 and 1,200 or something like that. For you and indie hackers, it's probably way quicker than that, right? Uh, but but there's always exceptions. <laughs> yeah, I just won't count the uh, the seven years before indie hackers. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but uh, that's right. Yeah. Overnight success. Right. <laughs> but I guess the point here is like, um, there's so much survivorship bias in entrepreneurial stuff you read, and there's so much garbage on Instagram around like you know multi level marketing scheme today, Lambo tomorrow, right? <laughs> like. Right. And so I think a lot of people, this is really brutal feedback, but if you're working on something and you're not seeing any results yet, like I think a good general rule of thumb is like three years to get there. And so for some people that haven't started, they're like, are you serious? Three years, right? But for other people that maybe they're in like the brutal Travasaro right in the middle, maybe that, that can be more reassuring. So I'm not really sure. Yeah. I mean, those three years are going to pass anyway. Three years from now, it will have been three years and you'll look back and wish <laughs> that you had kept working on whatever it is that you were doing because you'll be there. So totally in the same boat. It's going to take a long time, but it's worth putting in the effort. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one other thing back, back to your question around like, what's the relationship between having your job and, and having a side project and, and all that? For me, there's this other sort of concept that's going around called exit velocity. This guy I really like who talks about kind of lifestyle businesses and indie hacker businesses, Dan Andrews, he, he coined this term. But the idea is that like you're right now you're working for someone and you're being paid to do something and you're probably gaining, you're delivering value every day, but you're also gaining like a bunch of skills every day and you're working on stuff every day. And his point is like, it's kind of a dumb idea to not use that in your side project or in your indie project. So as an example, my initial idea to do medical tourism in Taiwan as a 22-year-old had no exit velocity. And just pulling up the definition here, this he, he coins the term exit velocity. He says, exit velocity is the amount of professional and entrepreneurial momentum you have when quitting your job and starting a new venture. Momentum can come from a variety of sources, investment, 
capital, experience, anchor clients, industry knowledge, and connections, aka unfair advantage. So like when I started my first idea, I had no experience, no clients, no connections, no interest, no capital, and surprise, surprise, it didn't work, right? But with the next one, I was doing SEO at one of the biggest sites and two of the biggest sites in the world. Then I was teaching SEO on the side. Then I was using my own product, dog food, my own team, right? Dog food, my own product and using it on my own team. I was improving it every day. I had a bunch of the brand credibility of working for these other companies, like in the product. So that the, by the time I inevitably left, I had like stacked the deck so much in my own favor. And I had so many unfair advantages that it was kind of inevitable that it was going to work, right? And so I think that's one thing to think about if you're an indie hacker. Like this is the problem some people make like, okay, they're, they're a trial attorney. They go to law school, they're a trial attorney for 20 years. And then they go to like sell CrossFit jump ropes or something like <laughs> that, right? Or like, but don't get me wrong. Like if, if you love CrossFit jump ropes, that's fine, right? But you know, or they're like a, they're a, a pediatrician and then they go create a paleo carrot cake website or something like that, right? Like, if you hate your job and you want to do something totally different, that's fine. But if you like what you're doing and you've been building experience in it for 5, 10, 20, 50 years, why not take all that and use that exit velocity for your next thing? So I do think that's one, again, one thing I accidentally did correct. I was not planning on doing this, but like, I had a bunch of unfair advantages at work. Those compounded on my side project and it made it easier to make the jump. Let's talk about some of the things that you did right with ClickMinded that weren't a result of unfair advantages. Because you had these connections, you had the experience teaching from your in-person uh, teaching business, but you also probably uncovered lots of different wins and successes with your online business that you hadn't predicted, that you weren't really prepared for. Uh, what did some of those look like that helped ClickMinded get to where it is today? Interesting. Yeah. So the first one is putting yourself in a situation where you have to pay rent and have to like <laughs> pay for food based on your inputs and outputs, right? Like I wrote this post kind of summarizing the last two years of leaving Airbnb to go full time and it was titled Burning the Boats. Um, and I really did. I really did burn the boats. I mean, I gave everything away I had. I bought a one-way ticket to a foreign country and it was really like, there's nothing to go back to now, right? You know, so... That was like the one one kind of meta thing that is really helpful. Um, well, tell me about that a little bit. Like what, what country did you go to? Why? And what did it look like when you got there? Yeah. So I was, you know, I love to travel. I traveled a lot kind of after university and then moved to San Francisco for six years and didn't travel a lot and really wanted to do um, this kind of digital nomad thing that's very popular now. And I really drank the Kool-Aid that's all over Instagram on this one, right? Like, you know, the most attractive people you've ever seen in Bali, like on the beach and coconuts and laptops. And I like bought this dream hard <laughs> and uh, I should not have. And um, <laughs> I was really dumb about this. I mean, I set my expectations really high for like what I was going to expect. And when I got there, it was miserable. I bought a one-way ticket. I went, you know, I, I, I left Airbnb and decided to pivot ClickBinded from an SEO course to like comprehensive digital marketing training. So seven courses. I went and spent $15,000 sort of filming the next version of the course and getting everything ready. And I got to Bali and I was so excited. And I was like, you know, I'm going to be a digital nomad and I'm going to build this business. And like the minute I got there, I was robbed by the police on the first day. <laughs> I started throwing up from food poisoning shortly after that. 
That's $15,000 I spent on refilming the course. It was raining really hard on this warehouse I'd rented. And so all the audio was like shot. And I thought all the footage was lost, right? And so I'm sitting in Bali one weekend, sitting in this, in this Airbnb in Bali. I'm looking up at the sky. It's pouring rain. I'd just been robbed by the police. I'm throwing up everywhere. I'm holding this external hard drive with $15,000 worth of garbage footage. And I'm sitting there like thinking about like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and Airbnb, and like, you know, the beanbags, and the MacBooks, and like the coolest people I've ever worked with. And I'm just like, what am I doing? Like, why <laughs> am I here, you know? Yeah. It was brutal. But I think the big, you know, I'm, I'm being a drama queen. Like, I got over it. We ended up fixing a lot of these problems. But one of the big mistakes I made, and if you're an indie hacker listening, you're working for someone else, and you're thinking about how great your life's going to be, like, once you make the jump... Um, I did myself a huge disservice by setting my expectations way too high. Like, uninstall Instagram immediately, stop reading all of these survivorship bias, entrepreneurship stories, realize that most startups are hard and most startups fail, right? And like, try and ground yourself a little bit more about how it's going to be. It's hard and all that. It's, it's, if you really want to do it, it can be a lot of fun, but like, if you set your expectations too high, you're going to be very grumpy on the other side. I can attest to that. <laughs> okay, let's talk about some good stuff. What were some of the, the first wins you had after going full-time on ClickMinded? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, once we were really in the, the mess of it, one of the things that, that was incredible was this idea of... We'd, we made a hard switch to um, heavier on media and heavier on webinars. And I'd, I, I'd never attended webinars. I hated webinars. I thought they were all a scam and super stupid and like used car salesman style stuff. But uh, we ended up putting our own spin on, on webinars that ended up working really well. And we did a Kickstarter style presale to this pivot we made. It was also really interesting too to bring on other instructors. I was the only instructor for the first four or five years of the business. But bringing on a bunch of other instructors was really cool. So now, yeah, we teach seven different courses on digital marketing. And our model is we try and find world-class experts that teach this stuff every day, right? So our social media course is taught by the former head of social media at Airbnb. The content marketing course is taught by the content strategist from Lyft. And like a bunch of these sort of like when I was all in, when I had to work on all this stuff, I, I realized a bunch of things like I'm not good enough to teach these courses. We, we got to come up with enough like cash to, to find people that are great, right? Or like we need a lot of revenue now. We have to pre-sell these things, right? And um, we ended up doing a, like just kind of going out into the world and figuring out what was working for other people from an internet marketing perspective and trying trying a lot of different things it was interesting too. I came to this kind of fascinating conclusion around the fact that I had really over my ego was way overinflated having worked at Airbnb. And there's a there's an interesting sort of thing that happens. I started my own business, failed miserably. Then I went to PayPal and Airbnb. And when you're behind the guise of these walled gardens, be curious to hear about you and your experiences, like indie hackers to Stripe to whatever you end up inevitably doing next. But I got too much credit for being Airbnb, right? Yeah. Like, and I'm curious if, if you have this thing at Stripe, but like, you know, you go to that internet marketing conference once or twice a year and you have that name badge that says like Tommy Airbnb and suddenly everybody's your friend, right? <laughs> and like, you're the coolest guy at the dance, you know? But then when I left, you know, like didn't have the safety in the guy under this walled garden and this cool brand that was like a household name, I went into the weeds of my own business. And like, once I started creating the next version of the product, the first conclusion was like, 
there are so many unknown people I've never heard of that are way better at this than me. Way so many better. People. I feel the same way. And it's with, with, with everything. It's not even necessarily joining a company. Like I went to MIT for undergrad and like you graduate from MIT and everyone just thinks you're hot shit. And you're like, I don't, I meet tons of developers who are way better than me all the time. <laughs> uh, working at Stripe, like ENIAC is being acquired by Stripe, instantly a much bigger deal to people. But behind the scenes, like nothing really changed. It's the same as it's always been. And uh the cool thing about that is obviously if people treat you better, then like you have a better life for a little while. And I think sometimes you, uh, in many of the same ways that becoming a teacher forces you to learn, people having high expectations forces you to try hard to live up to them because you feel like you're sort of playing catch up. But man, it's you're right. It's like you're way overhyped. And sometimes it takes you a while to realize that and really catch up to reality. For sure. And yeah, the, the single fastest way to come crashing back down in reality is to quit an awesome job, buy a one-way ticket somewhere, and have it all go horribly. <laughs> and, that, and that's what ended up happening with me. It's very humbling. <laughs> so I remember, had to be about two years ago, I was thinking about SEO a lot, and I kept hearing about ClickMinded. And you guys were like the gold standard in like, startup founders go here to learn about these different topics. I want to dig into how you got there. Um, it sounds like you were hiring the best instructors from the best companies. What are some of the, the things you guys did to make sure your reputation was so good and to help people like me find out that you existed? Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. It's funny. You always, what's that like? There's a human psychology thing around like we care, we care more about the losses or something yeah, like loss that. Yeah, loss aversion. Um, loss aversion. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically how casinos work, right? Like something around loss aversion. But it's the same thing with reviews. Like you kind of gloss over the positive reviews and you always focus on the negative ones. So that's, yep. I, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Yeah. So like I said before, I think a lot of the start was just using the own product to train up everyone in marketing at PayPal and Airbnb. And then the we just kept getting feedback. Another thing too, that might be valuable to think about for any indie hackers that are listening, like we have gotten really good at dialing in our customer avatar. And we're pretty relentless now about telling people not to sign up. Um, not, not all people. But a lot of people come in and they're, they're like, I'm an advanced SEO. I have seven years experience. I've done these kinds of things. I'm looking for this. Tell me why I should sign up. And we're like, you absolutely should not sign up. <laughs> right? So we focus very specifically on you know beginner to intermediate, people that they want to like have a comprehensive understanding of the bare minimum that they need to understand in the fastest time possible. And then people say things like, well, can I just use for YouTube videos and blog posts? Why do I need any of this? And our answer is, you absolutely do not need this, right? You absolutely can use YouTube and blog posts. And, you know, most SEOs are self-taught. I'm self-taught. You absolutely can teach yourself this. But kind of our value proposition is time. A lot of people use to train up teams. They want like an authoritative source to do it. And so we're just like really brutally, critically honest about when you should or shouldn't sign up. And I guess internet marketers are, are so sleazy about a lot of the stuff that they do that people can't believe it when you're honest. They can't, they can't believe you would leave sales on the table, but it's ended up just making our lives way easier. Like it was more, it, to be honest, it wasn't like a moral thing. It was like, we want less customer support tickets. You know what I mean? It's like very selfish actually. Yeah. But yeah, it's been that like, we're not, we don't try and <clears throat> we're not for advanced SEOs. If you've done SEO for a decade, you shouldn't be signing up for ClickMinded. There's no secrets. There's no tricks. Everything you could find, you could technically find out on your own, but we're just very clear about who we target and people seem to appreciate that. Yeah, that makes so much sense because if you want good word of mouth growth, that means people have to recommend you, which means they have to have a good time taking your course, which means they can't be 
wildly unqualified customers or the wrong customers because they're just going to leave you a bad review and tell people not to go there. So that's super smart. But it also strikes me that to have the confidence to do that, to turn customers away, you have to also have the confidence that you're getting customers in the door. How did you get customers in the door when you switched from offline to online? Like, Where are these people coming from? Yeah, interesting. I mean, so yeah, the majority of our of our business is SEO, uh, should be, right? Um, but yeah, outside of SEO, we've also done, and I think this is worth thinking about in the early days, we were really relentless with partnerships and really, really big on different types of partnerships. So the big one, like, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with AppSumo. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, AppSumo. So like Groupon for engineers and nerds. But yeah, the basic idea was like, I would latch on in the early days to other people with big email lists and basically find reasonable ways to get in there, even offline. Like there were co-working spaces in San Francisco where I would say, hey, I want to host an event, 50-50 revenue share, what do you think? And they looked like a series of bad deals. And, and whenever I talked to friends about this, they would always immediately ask about the revenue share numbers. They would always say, how much are you paying? What are you getting out of it? This and that. And every single one of my friends' unsolicited advice was, you're overpaying. Every single time. And it would just look like a succession of bad deals. But again, I accidentally did it right. What I think what a lot of people sort of undervalue is initial traction, figuring out product market fit, and the unit economics on kind of lifetime values, right? So like I did it back to back to back to back, quote unquote, bad deals again and again and again. And then all of a sudden I had a thousand paid users and word of mouth started to go. And even though the initial revenue on these wasn't that great, it ended up being like the, the first set of users that was really helpful. When I eventually left Airbnb and we decided to pivot to the kind of full seven courses, we did a presale. We had this massive list that I had been growing at that point for five years, both free and unpaid and unpaid users. So when we did this webinar launch, it was like this massive launch, one week long, pre-sell the product, get in at like a rate that you'll never get at any point. I had so many failures and so many bad deals, but the user base kept growing, growing, growing. And by the time we finally launched, we ended up doing, and I wrote a blog post that has all these numbers, we ended up doing a pre-sale launch of $113,000 in seven days. It's huge. And so it was just like, that moment was like, oh, like, <laughs> I, I might not die. Like it might, it might work. So it was like kind of snowballing for a while. And then it ended up being this moment in time where it's like, okay, let's go. It's so interesting because you ask people for advice or maybe they give you unsolicited advice and it's not bad on its face. Like if you were to zoom in specifically on one of those deals, yeah, it's a bad deal. But a startup isn't really one moment in time. It's not just one deal. It's an entire lifetime of your business. And yeah, that might be a bad deal today, but if it helps you kickstart your business and get out of this trough of sorrow and build an email list that can sort of sustain itself later on, then it's totally worth it. And most people giving you advice aren't going to have the same founder hat on that you have where you're looking at the bigger picture. They're going to be looking at like the one specific decision you're making in isolation. Exactly. And one of the... It's actually really interesting you bring that up because I had my one of my old bosses at this agency I worked at, I did paid advertising for a little while for four and five star hotels when I was kind of figuring this all out. And he had this saying once, and I didn't believe him. He said, if you want to, he said, if you, it was kind of a, well, he said, if you want to make a million dollars in life, first you have to make a million dollars for someone else. And I, at first I was like, this guy's just trying to get me to work for him for free. <laughs> but there's hidden wisdom in that. I think he said it in a, kind of a rough way. He could probably be more eloquent about how he said that. But 
the wisdom is <clears throat> that there's always kind of an ecosystem like above and below you. And especially when the unit economics are make sense, like you have a digital media product that scales to infinity or you have a SaaS that scales to infinity. It, it's really, really valuable to not look at individual deals in isolation and look at them more like slingshots or catapults that can like take you into the next level. Like put a lifetime value on your, on your per user email list, right? Put a lifetime value on number of eyeballs that like see things, especially when you don't have hard fixed costs on a per unit basis. So yeah, we just, and I ended up doing a, a series of bad deals for a couple of years. And then it just like, oh wait, all of a sudden we have a 30,000 person email list and you know, a hundred, a hundred something thousand dollars in a, in a week. I'm looking at the blog post, burning the boats that you wrote about click minded. And you've got a really cool graph in here where it's basically two graphs. And in blue, you've got your revenue going up every year. So 2017 was $312,000. 2018 was 380,000. 2019 is estimated to be about 500,000. But you've also got a second chart mixed in. And this is in red. It's the number of hours you're working every week. And the maximum was 2017. It was 60. But in 2019, it's down to something like eight or nine hours per week. How is that possible? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, those are kind of hours, like hours required of the business per week, right? So, like what it takes to like keep the lights on. And yeah, when full time is about 60 hours a week, the year after is about 40 hours a week, and now it's about 10. And it's not, everyone immediately says, okay, so what, you're drinking coconuts and like what else, <laughs> <laughs> what else is going on? We definitely have other ideas, we're definitely working on other stuff, but like the core business is kind of operating it at 10 hours a week. All of this is possible because of automation. Um, and it's actually my now co-founder, and this might be another tangent we could we could talk about, I talk about later in the blog post, but I very controversially brought on a co-founder in year five um, of my business. And yeah, we it, it was, this was a lot on him. He made a lot of kind of critical decisions in at this moment in time where we automated a lot of our stuff. We created, we got really dialed into our, our customer avatars. We got really dialed into what they'd want. We automated a lot of the things that they would want. And we invested in, yeah, like kind of templates and canned response to answer people's questions. And everything sort of became this very predictable thing where once we got really clear about who we wanted and who we didn't want, it was pretty easy to deliver them value with a, with a number of these like third-party applications. And um, it took a long time to get there. We were working on it like you know, a year and a half before. So it took about a year and a half to see the effects, but it's all started to compound and um, now it's working. Tell me about the controversial decision to bring on uh, a co-founder five years into your business. I love that decision, by the way. I'm a huge fan of the late co-founder. I think it's sometimes less controversial or less uh, contentious than starting with a co-founder. But tell me about your story. Really? I would, I would love to geek out with you on this because I've never heard anyone say they, they like that decision. Um, I'm a huge fan of it. I am too. So <laughs> let's, let's get beers. But yeah, so I left Airbnb, went full time on this. And the idea was like, okay, I got this. And, you know, ended up in Bali, like getting robbed, throwing up, didn't know what to do. And I had worked with, I, I was teaching at a university in San Francisco. And I, every summer I took on as kind of a side thing. And I, every summer I took on an apprentice and like kind of would work on things. And my last apprentice was just the best guy I'd ever worked with. And he had left San Francisco. He went to go to New York. And I was at this like Hail Mary moment, like I'm on the ropes, I'm about to die kind of moment. And I emailed him, Eduardo, my now co-founder, and just said, hey man, here's the situation. Here's where I'm at. What do you think? And what basically ended up happening was I got, I realized I wasn't fit for the job. 
I was kind of one of these guys who I'm very good at starting things and I can kind of get, the, I got, was able to get the project to, you know, the first 20,000 email user list and the first 100,000 revenue. But I'm like good at the getting people excited and started stuff. And I'm really bad at optimizing and making things more efficient and kind of being a little bit more practical, right? And Eduardo was a beast at this. He was really, really good at this. And kind of his brain was sort of more wired this way. And yeah, it was just one of these things where um, we had worked together before. We really liked it. He really enjoyed the product. And I did something also very controversial. You know, when you're the founder, you're supposed to have the vision. You're supposed to be the one leading the way and like the one doing the company all hands on Fridays and things like that. You, even if it's a one of oh, two person shop, I guess you're supposed to be doing that. But, you know, when we talked and we sat down and we talked about it a little bit more, his vision for like where we should take this was way stronger than mine, way stronger than mine. He was actually a much better avatar for our user than I was or than I could think of. And we basically, we got really annoyed with the digital marketing media world that's out there today. I'm not going to name any names, but there's too many blogs and sites out there that's just like, you know, the third article this week on how to massively grow your Twitter followers. And it's like, it's real. we really hate this stuff, right? Very clickbait. We don't like it. And so our avatar are people that want technical understanding of digital marketing with really comprehensive tutorials, checklists, cheat sheets. It's kind of evergreen stuff. It's less search volume. It's not going to get as many clicks, but it's like very practical takeaways. As in one example, like an unnamed internet marketing blog that I won't mention today might be talking about you know, the 17 things you should watch out for in 2020 with Google algorithm updates, right? But yeah. we're, but we're going to create stuff that's how to implement Google Tag Manager on a WordPress website, right? And like right. way less sexy, but more technical. And so... Very straightforward. Right, very straightforward. And so what happened with Eduardo was like, we sat down, we talked about it, and I was like, all right, um, let's go with your idea. <laughs> and it was basically like, I'm going to get out of your way. And this was one thing I did right was, um, you know, our team now is awesome. We have five people, but like I've, I've brought on awesome people and just kind of gotten out of their way and basically said like, you find, when you find the people that are just genuinely passionate about sort of what they're working on and you f ask them like, what's their plan? What would they want to do? And then mostly get out of their way. I'm curious, like if kind of that's what Stripe's doing with you and Indie Hackers, right? It's like, like the person's batteries included and just like let them go, you know? Yeah, Stripe's very hands-off with Andy Hackers. But I like the late co-founder for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned. Like Once you've worked on something for a while, you just understand it a lot more. You understand what the business needs, who would be a good person to work with. You understand your own weaknesses. You can make a much better decision. But you've also had enough control. You've been able to at least steer the ship in your direction. And it's so hard to... It's really hard to overestimate how many companies fail because of co-founder disputes, because co-founders don't get along early on. You sort of split the equity down the middle, 50-50 on day one. But then it turns out one person works, works way harder than somebody else. So one person really you know, isn't in this for the long haul. So I think sometimes you eliminate that risk when you are sort of the captain of your ship. And you can later on sort of unilaterally make the decision to bring someone on as a late co-founder under terms that make sense to you. So I think it's actually a, a way to de-risk what you're working on as long as you have the kind of personality where you can get something started by yourself, which is not everybody. A lot of people need someone else to work with to get to that point. And for them, they should probably start with the co-founder. But you sound like you know yourself well, and you're definitely that sort of self-starter who can get things from zero to some point beyond that. And so it really makes sense in your situation. That's such an interesting way to think about it. Um, yeah, like 
getting the ship like pointed in the right direction and then being more cognizant of, of what you need. Because you're right, now that I think about it, I mean, it's, it's actually so unlikely that both co-founders will do exactly 50% and need exactly those things, right? It's like, it actually makes less sense than I thought when you laid it out <laughs> that way. I just know a lot of people whose companies have failed because of co-founder disputes. And it's it just doesn't get talked about that much. Like there's, there's no graph where you can see how much it happens. But from uh, anecdotal evidence, it happens a lot. Right. And because it's so personal, right? And it's usually such a brutal fallout that no one, you know, people don't want to write about it publicly. And it's, it's, it's like a divorce. It's not good, you know? Exactly. Exactly. One other quick tip, Corlin, if you don't mind, that I would give to people that are thinking about this that I did that I, I really want to like propagate this and, and get people's feedback on it. When Eduardo and I were talking about this, there's so, and again, this is another thing where my friends called me an idiot, but I'm pretty happy with the decision. There's so much like, there's so many blog posts out there on like how to do equity and what pe- what's compensation and how to deal with a lot of this stuff. When Eduardo and I were talking about this and we like figured out the customer avatar and we figured out like what we wanted to work on and it was all way more personal. Like he wanted to work on this. He didn't want to have a job. He wanted to go like move to Europe and be with his girlfriend. I wanted like I, I w- it was more fun to work with him. So we had like a lot of like emotional decisions that weren't about money that were like those were kind of first place and I'm glad we did that. The next thing was instead of like if you're in this situation where maybe you bring on a co-founder late, instead of like coming up with a number out of your head, I did something that a friend recommended, which was I t-shirt sized the offer. And I just said, okay, before we even like figure out the money, I want to ask you, like, I'll give you three options, kind of like high salary with little to no equity, medium salary with medium equity, or no salary and all equity. And like, what, like, which sort of direction do you want? And he came back almost immediately and was like, there's no chance in my mind that this doesn't work. Give me all the equity. Let's go. And it was just like, yes, <laughs> you know, it was, yeah, it was because he was, he was all in, right? He was going to quit his job and go all in. And, you know, the minute he joined, like things went really bad and we had like, we, we were both in it together for a really long time and now things are going really well and he's seeing all that come back. And so um, I can't stress that enough. Like instead of go, like coming up with like these really detailed offers around like one year cliff and all this stuff, like go way more kind of meta around it, a, a little bit more emotional, just like how in are you? How, yeah. how serious are you? And, and where do you stand? You know? Yeah. I'm sure it makes it easier to have the specific conversations when you when you get like the high level bucket right first, when you start off on that leg. Exactly. Yeah, that's that worked for us. So you said that you guys have gotten the core functionality of ClickMinded down to just nine or 10 hours of work every week for you guys. And you're spending the rest of your time sort of pushing the business forward. What does that look like exactly? And what is the future for ClickMinded? So the one, we're thinking about a couple of different directions. The one um, thing we're really happy with, we created this new product called the SOP library. And it's just your classic, like everything Paul Graham says, like dog food it, make for yourself, be your own customer. And we just wanted a bunch of digital marketing SOPs for ourselves. The boring stuff I talked about, how to implement Google Tag Manager on a WordPress site, right? How to do cross subdomain tracking for conversion events in Google Analytics, like incredibly unsexy stuff, but like really helpful and really useful. And we ended up turning into a product that um, that we give to the users now that, that they really like. So we're like in the weeds with a lot of this digital marketing stuff. And um, we're really happy with where the product is. But now we're looking at like how other people are teaching it and starting to get really annoyed at how a lot of other people are teaching it. And my biggest problem is with universities. There are now 
more than 50 universities in the US offering a master's degree in digital marketing. They are garbage. They are between 40 to $100,000. They're one to two years. Sometimes they're a master's degree in social media. They are pointless. And young kids are getting defrauded, like getting scammed into taking these degrees and thinking that they're worth something, right? And um, these kids would be much better off. It's a, it is a business opportunity for us, but it doesn't even need to be. These kids would be much better off taking three months off, setting up a WordPress site, and watching YouTube videos, right? I mean, way better off than paying the university of whoever $100,000 a year for a master's degree in social media. I think the university have been slightly, of course, they're CS degrees, but like the coding boot camps are going much deeper into like kind of technical vocational stuff. And I really love, I love Lambda School. I love what a bunch of others are doing, but people aren't coming in on the digital marketing side. And I'm getting just genuinely very frustrated with with a lot of these guys. They're just bankrupting a whole generation. Young kids are thinking yeah. that, that these degrees are worth it, and they're not, and we're thinking about going after them next. We were talking about this earlier, about how a lot of businesses psychology, and you mentioned education and schools, and they have this whole... Uh, I don't know, like this this degree, this prestige thing going on that just like plays such a trick where it's like, I need the degree, I need the prestige, I need like the certificate that says I'm real. Uh, and you're right, it's like in a lot of cases, basically fraud. It really is. And to be frank, I, I had this situation where I got an email from a university, I won't say, and they were saying, hey, we're creating a curriculum committee. Basically, it's basically this group of people that decide what the kids are going to learn. And they... I got on the phone with them and they said, we have this degree. It's a master's degree in social media. It's $60,000. We have 50 something kids signed up. And they basically said like, what should we teach them? And it's like, <laughs> how, how is this not fraud? Like <laughs> what else is this? Right. It's just gross. And so, you know, it's probably happening at even a wider scale than this. I'm just very dialed into digital marketing. You know, it's only 50 programs in the U.S. It's like, that's very small. But this is probably happening everywhere, like communication, psychology, all this all this stuff. And, and there's so many industries benefiting from it. The textbooks com textbook companies, the apartment complexes, the financing companies. Like, there's a whole gross industry of people bankrupting 22-year-olds. And so I don't know what the answer is, but like, it, it does it does get me angry. I like, I wake up in the middle of the night sometimes angry about this, so I would love to address it somehow. Okay, so if you're considering going to college for a social media degree, think again. Please do not. Please give me an email. I will, I will talk you off the cliff. <laughs> Tommy, what other advice did you have for an early stage indie hacker who hasn't started their business yet and may not even have an idea yet? What should they know going into all this? Yeah, I mean, the thousand day rule and uh, exit velocity, I think, are, are big ones for me that, that we kind of previously mentioned. The other thing, too, I, I think about like what we said at Early, uh, earlier on with Naval Ravikant. I think he's dead on. What feels like work to other people should feel like play to you. Like th the world is so extreme now. You know, everything is so extreme and so like polarized that there's so little room to be mediocre that you kind of have to, to be really good or love what you're working on to develop as many unfair advantages as possible. So it sounds cliche and it sounds annoying, but for me, it was like SEO became my video game and I also love teaching. It's a weird, very specific thing, but it ended up working for me. So it's kind of like continue to work on what you're working on until it evolves into this bizarre sort of thing that, that only you can do. I wholeheartedly agree. 
I don't think it's a coincidence that the best business that I've ever started, which is Andy Hackers, also happens to be a passion project and an area that I really just genuinely care about. So thank you for leaving us with that advice, Tommy. And thanks for coming on and sharing your story. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to with ClickMinded? Yeah, on Twitter, I'm at Tommy Griffith. Um, our site is clickminded.com. And we just launched these 8-bit digital marketing and SEO strategy guides uh, that are free on there. So if you ever played Super Nintendo or Nintendo in the 90s, we kind of designed these SEO strategy guides as uh, like 8-bit characters. So that's free at clickminded.com. Very cool. Thanks again, Tommy. Corlin, thanks a lot. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.